Well, all of you know that uh, the Golden Gate Bridge is the most iconic bridge in the world. Uh, it is the most recognizable bridge in the world. In fact, it's one of the most recognizable structures ever built. When the Golden Gate Bridge was completed in 1937, uh, it was the longest suspension bridge in the world at that time. It stretches two miles, almost two miles, across the mouth of the Bay of San Francisco. And it really is an, a marvel of engineering. Now, I said that it was, at the time of its completion, the largest, longest suspension bridge in the world. And the operative word there is the word suspension. Because what that word tells you is that this two miles of steel and asphalt, this two mile long structure, has no support underneath it at all. It is completely suspended in midair. Think about it the steel, the asphalt, the concrete, the cars, the trucks. And the people in those cars and trucks, all of that weight is borne, it is all held up by cables. Nothing underneath it, only cables suspending it in midair. And every single day when thousands upon thousands of cars and trucks roll onto that bridge, and they don't roll on slowly, one at a time, creeping across carefully, boom, 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 they are just going constantly. But with every one of those cars and trucks and the people in them, as they roll out onto that pavement of the Golden Gate Bridge, they increase the pressure. They, they increase the weight load that must be borne. They, they increase the tension, the, the amount of force being applied exponentially. And the only thing that holds them up are these cables. Now, they are large cables, to be sure. The cables that hold up the Golden Gate Bridge are, if you can imagine, three feet in diameter, three feet in diameter, these cables, but they're made up of more than 25,000 individual wires, all of which are less than a quarter of an inch in diameter, 25,000 wires formed together, woven together to create a three foot wide cable. And those cables, which nobody ever pays attention to once they take their first picture, Nobody driving across the bridge thinks much about the cables. They're more interested in the asphalt and the smoothness of the journey. But the cables, they make all the difference in that journey. The cables are the very character of the bridge. They're the, the integrity of the bridge. It's the cables that have to provide the strength to hold up the burdens on the bridge. And if the cables fail, then the bridge will collapse into a tragedy. Now, in exactly the same way, every single person in this room and every one of you watching online and all of you at our Merriman campus, 
every one of us must bear up under the loads and the pressures and the tensions of life. We all have pressure on us. We all carry burdens. We, we all have a load on our bridge. Now, thankfully, sometimes there are seasons when our load seems relatively light. Sometimes it seems like the bridge is, is almost empty. But how many of you have enough life experience to know that there are other times when the bridge seems to be pretty loaded down? Amen? Sometimes it seems like cars of burden just keep pulling onto our bridge. And sometimes it's like, there's, like they all just pull on and stop. They don't even pass over quickly. They hang out for a while, and it's like we have a traffic jam of trouble on our bridge. And here's the fact, that when the tension rises and, and when the pressure is applied and when the, the burden increases, in those moments, if there is not a structure in place that will allow us to bear up under it, then the inevitable will happen, and there will be a collapse. And the collapse will be tragic. Let me give you a definition for the word tension. Because you all know what it is to feel tension, but what does it mean? Here it is. The word tension means to apply a force of pressure to the point of stretching or straining. To apply a force of pressure to the point that that something or someone is stretched or is being strained. Now let me ask you a question. Does anybody in the room feel stretched or strained lately? Anybody want to raise your hand and be honest? Sure. Sure we do. If you are a family, if you're a, a married couple or a single parent, and you have children who are school-age children, are you feeling some strain in these days? You feeling the stress and the strain of filling, uh, figuring out how to do school in an A, B kind of schedule and some days my kids go to school and the other days I've got to figure out childcare for them or for some of you you're, you're trying to no longer just be a parent and for most of us working parents but now we're homeschool teachers as well. And we're trying to figure out how to navigate all of that. For many of you, that includes paying tuition at private schools or Christian schools or universities or college campuses. And so there's the financial strain that comes along with that. And you feel the weight and the pressure and the burden. And every time that uh, you're faced with those days of education and those decisions, it's like another car pulls onto your bridge. One of the things that we don't consider quite often is uh, the fact that our students, our teenagers, our preteens are under a lot of pressure, a lot of tension as well. I think I mentioned to you a week or so ago that I read a statistic recently that one in four students now say that they have considered self-harm or suicide. One in four in these days. 
Because we're living in that this season where now they're dealing with all sorts of pressures and tensions that they've really never had to consider uh, before. The strain of canceled classes and online learning and navigating how we can uh, how how we're going to deal with canceled sports seasons and canceled uh, graduations and canceled proms and all of the things that that are being canceled their distant friendships and their lack of social interaction and it's applying pressure and weight and a burden and while I'm talking about parents who are struggling with that and students who are struggling with that there are a lot of you in the room who are teachers and you're struggling with that as well. And so now you're having to learn how to teach on the internet and, and try to be an effective teacher to students who are not even in your literal classroom any longer. Business owners are struggling with COVID restrictions and reduced business. Employees are working harder, oftentimes with less help. And all of this ultimately comes back to the home. You know, in engineering and physics, they talk about load points. And wherever you're catching a load, wherever you're bearing a load here or here, there has to be a load point. It all comes back to a, to a foundation or a footing where there's a, there's a point to bear that load. And everything that I'm describing ultimately comes back to the home. And that load point is in that marriage and in that home. And very often, because that foundation is not as sure and secure and strong as it should be, then it's, then it's beginning to crack at home as well. Now, these are the realities of, of just some of the very contemporary burdens and, and weights that all of us are living with. And that's not even to mention, as we talked about in recent weeks, the political environment, which is just so uh, divided and polarized and the social divide that's happening. The fact is, these are, these are days of great tension in our land, great tension in our homes. And so what I hope is going to be helpful is that beginning today, we're going to begin a brand new teaching series where for the next seven Sundays, we're going to be thinking together about how we can overcome the high tension, the burdens, the pressure uh, in which we are living. Seven strong, we're calling it. Seven strong, overcoming high tension. And over the next seven Sundays, we're going to learn from the experience of God's people who were living under the strain of Persian captivity and living under the strain of Persian persecution. And in so doing, we're going to study five people. I'm going to go ahead and give you a heads up. You can be reading ahead. We're going to study the lives of five people, all of whom are found in the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. If you want to read ahead, you can read those three books, and you'll read about all five of these people. There's an orphan, a priest, and three politicians. An orphan, a priest, and three politicians. Sounds like the beginning of a joke, doesn't it? <laughs> An orphan, a priest, and three politicians walked into a bar. No, I'm kidding. But we're going to study an orphan, a priest, and three politicians and the seven qualities of their lives, all of which we'll trace back to Jesus, but the seven qualities of their lives from which we can learn how to bear up under these times of high tension. Well, I want to begin that. I just want to introduce the idea to you today by reading from 2 Chronicles chapter number 36, beginning in verse number 14, where we're going to see the situation, the circumstance of God's people that these five specific people were living in the midst of. 
Let me just read beginning in verse number 14 of 2 Chronicles uh, 36. I'll read through the end of the chapter. Verse 14 says, Moreover, the chil- uh, moreover all of the chief of the priests and the people transgressed very much after all the abominations of the heathen. And they polluted the house of the Lord, which he had hallowed in Jerusalem. And the Lord God of their fathers sent unto them by his messengers, raising them up betimes, or raising them up over and over and sending them, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God, and they despised his words, and they misused his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people till there was no remedy. Therefore, he brought upon them the king of the Chaldees, who slew their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary, and had no compassion upon their young men or their young women, old men or him that was stooped for age. He gave them all into his hand. And all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his princes, all of these he brought to Babylon. And they burned the house of God. And they broke down the wall of Jerusalem. And they burned all the palaces thereof with fire. And they destroyed all of the expensive vessels thereof. And then uh, them that had escaped from the sword, he carried away to Babylon where they were servants to him and his sons until the reign of the kingdom of Persia. To fulfill all the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths. For as long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill threescore and ten years, or seventy years. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord spoken by the mouth of Jeremiah might be accomplished. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, the king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom. He put it also in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, the king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth hath the Lord God of heaven given me, and he has charged me to build him a house In Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is there among you of all his people, his Lord, or the Lord his God be with him? Let him go up. Now, by the way, interestingly, if you turn one page to the book of Ezra, which is the next book in the Bible, notice Ezra chapter 1 and verse 1, how that it begins exactly the way 2 Chronicles ends. 2 Chronicles chapter number 36 and verse number 22. Now in the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia. Ezra chapter 1 verse 1. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. Chapter 36 of 2 Chronicles, that the word of the Lord spoken by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. There's a beautiful dovetail out of 2 Chronicles and into the book of Ezra, almost like a tongue-and-groove board so that Chronicles ends and Ezra begins. And that's one of the reasons that a number of scholars believe that Ezra, the priest, 
was actually the author of both First and Second Chronicles, as well as his own book, the book that carries his name, Ezra, and the book of Nehemiah. But these passages tell us about the final days of the Davidic dynasty, the kingdom of David and his descendants in the land of Judah with the capital in Jerusalem. If you want to make a note out on the margin of your Bible somewhere in 2 Chronicles 36, just give it a time stamp. This would be around the year 600 B.C., a little before that, probably 615 B.C. But for round numbers, about the year 600 B.C. It's in the final days before that kingdom is going to collapse. The pressure upon the kingdom of Judah is going to ultimately bring about its collapse. And it will fall to the king of Babylon, whose name is Nebuchadnezzar. He's called the king of the Chaldees in 2 Chronicles 36. Uh, it's the king of the Chaldeans. Uh, the kingdom falls and is destroyed. And not only is the kingdom collapsing, but the Jerusalem temple, the Jewish temple in Jerusalem, is completely destroyed. And the city is destroyed. And as Ezra records in Second Chronicles 36, the wall is destroyed, the homes are destroyed, the entire city is laid waste. Now, by the way, I might just stop and point out to you that in 2 Chronicles 36, there are a couple of principles that emerge that are really timely for us as Americans. And so this is not really the point of the message, but I would be remiss if I didn't point them out to you. Jot them down really quickly. First of all, this is, here's a principle that you should understand out of 2 Chronicles 36. The sins of a nation will ultimately bring about God's wrath on that nation. So there's personal sin, there's sort of family or generational sin, and then there's national sin. And the book of Psalms in one place talks about the fact that every nation that forgets God will be, will be sent to death. The King James says will be turned into hell. Literally means they will die. Uh, every nation that forgets God will die. The Bible says that sin is a reproach to any nation. Or to any people. Here's what we should know. National sins will ultimately bring about the wrath of God upon the nation. Now, this indictment comes in 2 Chronicles 36 and verse number 14, where it says, Moreover, the chief priests and the people, that's the nation and their leaders, transgressed very much after the abominations of the heathen, and they polluted the house of the Lord which he had hallowed at Jerusalem. So what happened? What was the national sin of Israel? It was idolatry, a worship of something other than God, and the diminishing of, their, of, of the true God who had been their national and historic God. So they took the, 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 the truth of who God was, diminished him, and they elevated and worshiped things, idols, deities that were not God at all. It was a national Sin. Now that led to all sorts of injustice, all sorts of immorality, which were pervasive in the land. And the Bible says in verse number 16 that they continued to do this so often that they then even mocked God's messengers. Verse 16, but they mocked the messengers of God. They despised his words. They rejected or mocked his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against the people uh, till there was no remedy. That's alarming words. It really is kind of a frightening passage. 
that there can come a time in a national experience when, when God will pour out his wrath and there's, no, there's nothing going to stop it. There's nothing that's going to turn it back around. Verse 16 says, until there was no remedy. So understand this, that national sin, when we, when we thumb our nose at God long enough as a nation, then ultimately God will judge that nation. Now, here's the second principle. And it really is the flip side of the same coin, but it is that God's mercy has an expiration date. Because some of you may have been saying, well, Pastor, that's true. I mean, God, God will ultimately pour his wrath out on nations that sin uh, endlessly against him, but isn't God merciful, right? I mean, can't we depend on God's mercy? Can't we get up every morning and say, his mercy is new every morning? We can. He is merciful, but understand that there is a point at which God's mercy toward a nation will expire. That's exactly what happened in uh, the nation of Judah in Jerusalem. And you see his mercy in verse number 15, the Lord God of their fathers sent unto them. Verse 14, they, they are sinning, they are worshiping idols, they are transgressing, they are adopting the abominations. It's the, the pagan worship of the heathen. They've defiled the house of God. But verse 15, but God just keeps on reaching out to them. God just keeps on sending them Prophets, God keeps on sending them ministers. He keeps on sending them offers of grace and mercy. He, he keeps on, verse number 15 says, he, he sends them betimes, the King James says. It means over and over and over and over and over again. God keeps reaching to them and they keep mocking God, verse 16. They keep rejecting and mocking God's offer of grace. And finally, there's an expiration date. And God says, okay, you've chosen your way. And so beginning in verse number 17, he sends upon them Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the Chaldees, or the Babylonians. They ravaged, as verse 17 describes this ravaging, this rampaging. As the Babylonians come through their cities and their towns and through the capital of Jerusalem, swords drawn, and they're, they're slaying everyone in sight, men and women and young men and old men. Verse number 18 tells us that they looted not only the temple, but they looted the palaces. They looted the houses. Verse number 19, they burned the city. They burned the temple. And then verse number 20, they enslaved everyone uh, whom they did not kill. Verse number 16, they simply came to this place where there was no remedy and the judgment of God failed and it was devastating. So by the time you come to the end of 2 Chronicles, you're at the end of chapter number 36. Judah is gone. Jerusalem is destroyed. The temple is removed. People have been slaughtered. And all those who have survived have been taken down into Babylon where they are now servants of the king of Babylon. Well, ultimately, the Babylonian empire falls, as every empire ultimately does. The Babylonian kingdom fell. The Medes rose to power. Ultimately, the Persians came to power. And when you come to verse number 22, you're in the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia. Seventy years have elapsed since Nebuchadnezzar came and Judah fell. And it's during this reign of Cyrus and the kings that follow him that we encounter the five people that we'll learn about in the three books of Ezra, Esther, and Nehemiah. The orphan, the priest, and the three politicians. 
Now, all I'm doing today is introducing this idea to you, sort of setting the stage. And, and, uh, and so I just want to introduce these five people to you. And then we're going to be dismissed and go and, and get connected in a life group. So let me tell you who these five are that we're going to be talking about. First of all, write down about Esther. Here's what we're going to learn about Esther. Queen Esther was a heroine who saved her people from certain death. Esther is one of the great heroes of the Old Testament. And I want to read to you from Esther chapter number 4. If you'd like to turn, you can. It's just right after Chronicles. You'll, you'll be in Ezra, and then there's Nehemiah, and then Esther. Now, this will be really helpful for the next seven weeks. All three books are right together, okay? Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. Go to Esther chapter 4. Look at verse number 14. Esther 4 and verse number 14. And so at the end of verse number 14, Esther receives this challenge from her, uh, her cousin Mordecai where he says to her at the end of verse number 14, do you not know that you have been brought to the kingdom for such a time as this? And we'll talk about it when we get to Esther's story. And I don't want to give it all away today, but the long and short of it is, is that Esther is put in a position where she has the ability to rescue her people, but not without risk to her own life, her own well-being. And so he says to her, God brought you here for this season. God put you here for such a time as this. And out of her fear and with her courage and by faith in her God, she steps up to the moment and she in fact says, I believe it's in verse number 16. Yeah, at the end of verse number 16, she says, okay, I'm going to do it. And if I perish, I perish. If I perish, I perish. There's great courage and faith that she demonstrates. Esther was a heroine who saved her people from certain death. Here's the second one we'll talk about is Ezra. What do we need to know about Ezra? Ezra was a priest who brought about a spiritual revival. Now, if you grew up Catholic, we're not talking about a Catholic priest. We're talking about a Jewish priest, okay? He's a priest of God in the Jewish nation in Judaism, and he brought about a spiritual revival. Let me read to you from the book of Ezra chapter 7 and verse 10. Ezra chapter 7 verse 10 says this. For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach in Israel God's statutes and his judgments. He had prepared his heart to seek and to do and to teach. To seek, to do, and to teach. And we're going to learn how that Ezra, in his commitment, brought about a spiritual revival. Well, that's two, the orphan and the priest. Now there are three politicians. We're going to put the three of them together. Write them down. Zerubbabel, there's a name for you. Zerubbabel, Nehemiah, and Mordecai. Zerubbabel, Nehemiah, and Mordecai were all politicians who guided the nation. They were all politicians who guided the nation. Now, I'm not going to give you a verse or a passage for each one of them today, but let me just mention out of Nehemiah chapter number 2 uh, what Nehemiah did. He's a really good model for the other two as well. Nehemiah chapter 2 verse number 17, he says to them in the middle of the verse, you see the, uh, uh, the, the despair, you see that the Jerusalem is lying waste, the gates are burned with fire. Now, this is the condition that they were in as a result of the king of the Babylonians, 2 Chronicles 36, coming and destroying 
the place. But interestingly, that happened around the year 585, 600 BC. 70 years passed before any of them come back. And then another number of years after that, by the time you come to Nehemiah chapter 2, you're about 80 to 90 years after, 80 to 90 years after 2 Chronicles 36, where it says that, that Nebuchadnezzar knocked down the walls. And 70, 80, 90 years later, Nehemiah standing at these same broken down walls. By the way, you ever had a project so big you just didn't know where to start? Wives, have you ever asked your husband to do something and he says, I'll do it, I'll get to it. And 70 years go by and he still hasn't started? Don't answer that. 70, 80, 90 years pass, he's still standing there at the rubble. And finally somebody stands up and says, you see this mess? You see the, how Jerusalem lies waste and the walls are burned with fire. He says in chapter 2, verse 17, Come, let us rise up and build that we will be no longer a reproach. And they strengthen their hands for that good work. Nehemiah is a great example of a, of a leader among the people who led the nation, guided the nation out of such trouble. And so we have the five, Ezra, Esther, Mordecai, Zerubbabel, and Nehemiah. And in those five heroes, we are going to find seven qualities that if we will put those qualities into our lives, and these will all be traced to Jesus, but if we will live with these qualities in our lives, the cabling of our lives will allow us to bear up. The strength that we will receive will allow us to bear up in times of high tension. What are those five qualities? Let me give them to you real quickly. They're not going to be on the screen. You're going to have to write fast, but we're going to learn them every week, so don't worry if you miss them. Here they are. Number one, devotion. Number two, grace. Number three, integrity. Number four, courage or faith. Number five, duty. Number six, discipline. Number seven, obedience. And every week, we're going to ask the question, how can I inculcate those qualities into my life? How can I surrender to the Lord in such a way that the Spirit of God can cause me to be a person like Ezra, Esther, Nehemiah, Mordecai, or uh, um, Zerubbabel? How can I be a person that's going to have these qualities in my life? And how can I then have the strength that those qualities produce? And that question, how do I not just hear a principle on a Sunday morning, but but actually begin to live something out in my life in a very real and a practical way, in my relationships, in my marriage, in my work, and all that I do, that's going to be the very real question of our life group studies every week. And every single week, your leader is going to guide you. What you'll learn on Sunday morning, you'll take into your life group, and then your leader will guide you in how we can learn to actually see those things come to fruition in our lives. It'll be guided through discussion questions and you'll have those questions and can come to, to your group prepared. We'll provide you the questions every Sunday morning so that you'll be able to be ready when you go to group. And in your group, you'll talk about them and you'll pray over them and you'll learn how and help each other to live them out. But do you know if you're not connected in a group, that would be an impossible thing to happen. It would simply be learn it on Sunday morning and just hope as best you can just to put it to work if you can. You need to be with some people who can help you do that.